Uh, good afternoon, sir, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, just before we move on with the second presentation from Major General Ryan this afternoon, uh, a reminder for those in the outstations uh, to submit questions. Uh, please use the mobile number that's on your screens, text them through, and we'll ask them at the conclusion of this uh, presentation. Uh, sir, over to you, please. Thanks, mate. Thanks. Um, can everyone hear me? I had to take my microphone off in the break because I went to the bathroom and never take a microphone into a bathroom, I tell you. Um, so this, this presentation is based on my initial commander's guidance I gave to my brigade headquarters staff day one when I took over one brigade. There's probably one person in the audience who is in that room. So Stace, tell me whether I've strayed from what I gave you, but I've certainly evolved it over the years. I did it and I focused primarily on the planning, but I looked at design and uh, the execution piece. And there's lots of different ways to do it, but my view is if you're commanding something, you should be very clear about your expectations right up front, okay? And have a very open dialogue about what you want, why you want it, and then go from there. And you can iterate it, and I've iterated this multiple times, and we, and we rehearsed it, and we trained it, and all that kind of thing. But I'm a big believer in being pretty explicit uh, about what you need as a commander. So this is just my personal views. Uh, some of it's doctrine, some of it's just Mick Ryanisms, which some people will kind of shake their heads at, that's fair enough. Uh, but it's just a way of thinking about the role of command in design, planning and execution of operations. Okay, so it's probably a little bit more technical than the previous one. There'll be some stuff in here you might have seen in COAC. Who's done COAC? Pretty good course, isn't it? Great course. Need to have more coacs. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about this and just ask me any question. Um, ask, you know, like interrogate me, please. If you think something doesn't quite sound right, ask me about it. I'm happy to have a conversation. And I could be wrong. You just never know. All right, so basics of all this. You know, this is a fundamental command responsibility. One of the things our doctrine in particular and our training system uh, is weak at is preparing commanders for their role in planning in particular. Um, up until about the last version of our planning doctrine, it didn't even have very much guidance on the role of commanders in planning, which is crazy, because planning is only about supporting command decisions. So how have we for so long missed that critical connectivity between the commander and planning and the role of commander at every single step through that process? Some of it's implicit, uh, we've started to get more explicit because if you don't know what right looks like and it's not in doctrine, learning it on the job isn't always the best option. The person who, a few things uh, where I gain my knowledge, firstly, Jim Molan, uh, now a senator, uh, was Commander 6 Brigade back in the day. Uh, sorry, sorry, Commander 1 Brigade, uh, has also commanded an infantry battalion in this brigade. He is the best at this. He gets command, planning, the interaction, the commander in execution, those kind of things. He was amazing. Also really, really scary. Like if, I remember being in the back of his car one night, carrier one night, and uh, Brigade Main got on the horn and said, ah, sir, we've lost comms with two of the battle groups. He was pretty unhappy. And he says, how long have we lost comms with them for? And they went, uh, six hours. <laughs> so he kind of lost it. Uh, and I was a young captain sitting in the back trying to fade into the side of the fuel tank. Um, but, but Jim understood this. The other people who are really good at this are the US Marines. They have a lot of doctrine on 
that are very explicit about the role of commanders in this whole process. And if you can read the Marine Corps planning process, McPeepee, uh, everything the Marines do starts with MC, so it's Mc this, Mc that. Uh, but their doctrine, and you can download it, is some of the best planning doctrine uh, that's available out there. Okay, so it's a fundamental responsibility of command. The commander has to drive it. Can't be a passenger, right? If you're the boss, you drive it. You provide feedback all the way through. Don't just sit back and let it happen and let it wash over you because that is a great way to kill people at the end of this process. Um, I always saw my role as brigade commander and CO too. You're the chief tactician. Not the only one, but you're the chief one. You gotta know your stuff. And when I was brigade commander, there were two PAMs I always had on my desk and always had with me in the field. Formation tactics, planning process, always. And the reason for that was, I might know a few things, but I forget a lot of things too. And you, the more tired you are, and the more cranky, the more wet, the more hungry you are, the more you forget. It's always good to go back to a ready reckoner. And we can all do it. You don't have to memorise everything. You don't have to know everything. You just got to know where to find the important stuff when it really, really matters. Um, integrated planning, really important way of thinking about this. You know, I talked about Loggy's got to be in the room right from the start. Have everyone in the room you need in the room from the start and have them go through the process. Don't just have a core team go, oh, we'll expand out later on. If they're important to execution, they're important to the whole process. So have the right people there. Okay, and finally, single battle. Okay, this is a mindset of how you plan your fight, how you plan your operation. All right, so design. That's what Jim Mattis reckons design is. I'll let you read that. For me, design is the thinking about thinking. It's about that very initial thinking piece that a commander and a few others do to provide guidance to the more formal part of planning. Now, one of the things I was taught when I did Marine Corps Command and Staff College was a thing called the Commander's Battle Space Area Evaluation. Anyone ever heard of one of those? It's essentially how the Marines conceive of how an operation might be planned and executed from the commander from very early point. Um, and we'd have to produce these things over and over before we even got into the planning piece, right? Before you started doing your IPB and mission analysis and stuff. So I did it in Afghanistan, every mission, CBAE, well in advance and it covered a whole range of things, mission parameters, risk, outcomes, and stuff like that before we even got into planning. Okay, design is a really important part of command and how a commander thinks about a problem or potential problem and how he wants to shift the institution from here, pre-problem, through to here, problem solved. Okay, and then the planning fills in that gap. Okay. Now, a really important part of this phase is, I reckon COs are essential to it. And that's this commander-CO dialogue, constant. Okay. Um, one of the things I did, and Stacey's probably laughed her ass off at this, is 
when I first got to one brigade, I got rid of all the big conference tables and just made our conference room very intimate with the COs and key staff. Because it was like, well, this is what it's going to be like in the field, but we need to have a constant dialogue. I don't want tables and physical impediments getting in the way of us talking and having a dialogue. Okay, so this design thing has to be informed by the COs in particular. And that's, I reckon, the key interaction during this design phase. BM's probably going to be there. Maybe Chief of Staff, although he'll probably be at Maine, somewhere like that. But Commander and COs, this is so important, this design, before we even get into planning. Because out of this, whilst the planning's going on, the COs are already in the Commander's head and they're giving initial warning orders to their people, to their battle groups, to their supporting organisations. This is a CBAE I talked about that we learned uh, at Marines. Uh, like I said, I don't think we're as good at it in our army. We don't have the same emphasis. We've got better at it. It is in our doctrine now, thank goodness, but certainly not to the degree that the Marines have really emphasised the role of a commander in planning, regardless of what level. Okay, so it's worth complementing your knowledge of our planning process with theirs, because I think it's best practice when it comes to this topic. Okay, so out of this whole thing should come this process of design, this conversation with the commander and the COs, with their initial inputs, with whatever he's received from his boss, should come some initial guidance. Okay, what does that look like? Well, there's no set format for this, and it'll depend on the problem you've got, the amount of time your commander's got and your time you've got for planning. But here's just some thoughts on what you might, as a planning team, like to get in your initial guidance before you get into planning. Okay, now, once again, I'll caveat this. If you have to do hasty planning, there will be times when you may not have time for this, but it will be still worth it, okay? Because if you can get your start state right, you can take shortcuts down the track in some of your planning. But this stuff is really, really important. If your start state's wrong, it doesn't matter how good your planning is. Okay, so this design process, even if it's very short, is an important aspect of guiding where your planning goes. Sorry. All right. Planning. Who likes planning? Come on. I love it. It's great. No, I don't. It's like sticking a pen in your eye, right? Uh, and it's so painful. And like, it's such a waste of time. And all you do is sit around and argue and all that stuff. Well, yeah, but you gotta do it. That's part of combined arms operations, right? Sitting around a table and arguing with each other. It's like, well, you haven't given me those trucks or I need those guns or I need this priority. That's all part of planning. Mission analysis. I'm gonna teach you mission analysis, you know that. But this were, these were the kind of things that I would focus on in the mission analysis back brief. Okay, and the mission analysis in the planning was the one thing that I thought if you don't have a lot of time, bias your time towards. Because a good mission analysis can cover a lot of mistakes down the track. Okay, a bad mission analysis, doesn't matter how good your planning is after that, you're done. Okay, so if you have limited time, the one thing you have to get right as a staff 
is your mission analysis and that back brief to whoever you're giving it to and get a, have a really good interaction in that and get good guidance out of it. Then clearly you should be getting course of action guidance. Now, this seems kind of like a nice, tidy set of steps. Sometimes you're going to be doing two, of these three, two or three of these things at the same time. Okay? Commander might say, when you come back to me with a mission analysis, I want some rough colours as well. Just depends. But you still should be getting some guidance that will help you along. Once again, could be battalion level, could be brigade, could be divisional. Okay, but it's really important to get this. Key elements, they were the kind of things I thought about. Okay, simple, it's doctrine. But I always thought it was useful to be explicit to my staff about what I was interested in. And that's why I gave them this presentation. Obviously tidied it up a little bit since then. But once again, being explicit about the kind of behaviour, the kind of output you want out of a planning process is important. What else? These things. Now, the inclusivity bit, I'm not sure whether it's in doctrine or not, but for me, that was vital. It's like, sometimes you go, where's Dobbo? Or where's whoever? And they go, ah, oh, he wasn't necessary for this. And I was like, well, what, so the logistician wasn't necessary or the aviation person wasn't necessary. I think kind of in the advance, both will be quite important. So if in doubt, include them. Like you can't have too many in this kind of activity and it will seem like it at times, but include people because it will pay off down the end because the earlier they're in, the earlier warning they can give their unit. Remember, it's not just about their participation in a formation planning process, it's about them having a constant feed of information to their units and their organisations that are going to support this larger execution down the track. All right, some things about the course of action brief. Standardise, always good. If you've got templates, prepare templates well in advance, okay, and just fill them out. Saves you time. Simple things like that, hard copy and digital. Sometimes just have a couple, you know, couple dozen single A3 or A4 hard copies because computers always work right. Just in case. Have them digital, have a backup just in case. Because even if it's working, the enemy may decide to take away your systems at some point. Okay? So have backups, paper for all these things. Wargaming, really important, even if it's quick. Take it, if you're going to do it, take it seriously. Even if you war game one lane, one critical part of an operation, really important because it can flesh out your course of action. It can flesh out command and control measures. It can flesh out organisations. It can flesh out priorities. Flesh out priorities of supply, these kind of things. If you have the time, try and do a war game or a couple of quick war games. Okay, you'll be amazed what you can get from a very quick, simple war game looking at key elements, key boxes, key lanes, key aspects of a forthcoming operation. Now, one of the things you should be given is the evaluation criteria. Once again, you could be given this right up front as part of COA dev or COA dev um, guidance. 
You can even get it in your initial guidance. The commander go, you know, down the track here, this is how I'm thinking about comparing course of action, but you should have some kind of criteria. If not, ask, develop them, propose them. Okay? It shouldn't just be this. Because remember, you're doing this at the worst of times, not the best of times. You're tired, you're cranky, you don't have all the comforts at home. You need an analytical basis for emotional decisions. And then decision. Commanders can be really annoying in some of the decisions they make. Like, really annoying. It's like, what if they don't like all the colours? I've done that. Or they go, I'll take bit of one, bit of two, bit of three. So annoying. Like, I've done that too. But it happens sometimes because every now and then planners come up with bits of genius in parts of colours, not just in a whole colour. It happens. Guess what? Suck it up. Okay? And then combine it and maybe do another quick war game, pull it together. But it's just be prepared that when people look at your colours as planners, they're not going to pick the one you like. They're going to pick the one that meets their boss's requirements and the requirements of the formation you're fighting. Orders. Another thing the Marines do, and I hate going back to the Marines, but gee, they're good at this stuff. They're good at the front and they're good at the back. The front bit, CBAE, the back, orders crosswalk. Anyone heard of that? It's really simple. You basically sit round with all the right people with the order and make sure it's right. Like, so simple. But I've rarely seen that in our system. What happens is once a direction's been made about the preferred course of action, decisions made, we write it and then it goes out. This just puts in a very simple, quick step. Just crosswalk the order, you do a whole lot of cross-checking and you catch where there's discrepancies in timings, discrepancies in command and control measures, discrepancies in groupings. Even those three areas alone, if you can catch discrepancies early, you're saving time down the track where people are going, is it this time or that time? That can slow you down a lot. And, you know, new appreciation of time, remember that first presentation? You can't afford those kind of things. So the crosswalk, if you have a chance, is a really important opportunity to catch at the last minute mistakes, because there will be mistakes. Like I said, you're doing it at the worst of times, not the best of times. All right, so then you get into execution. This is the easiest bit, right? It's really easy. Just ask the Russians. Okay, SAPs. Just do them. There's a reason they have them. Has everyone got a, I assume everyone's got a copy of Brigade SOPs? It's easy, know them, use them. Um, once again, they're for the worst of times. When you're tired and stuff, do that. However, in execution, these are the kind of things as a commander you want to be thinking about. Most important thing, enemy focus. Your mission going to be kill, destroy, whatever. Destroy is a good one, because then you don't have to fight them again. But there's a whole range of different missions, but focus on the enemy. Okay, don't focus on up here, focus on the enemy. That's your job. Commander will be worrying about up there. All right, rehearsals, rehearse everything. You know, there's the old saying, time and reconnaissance is never wasted, time and rehearsal is never wasted. It's amazing the kind of things you'll pick up. And all these kind of things that I would be interested in looking at as a commander. 
you can have hard copies of this and I'm happy to provide you with the full presentation. So for me, this was just an opportunity to talk to you about like I did my staff on day one as a brigade commander. And this evolved as we worked together and we did things together. Um, but in essence, design was about the brigade commander and COs having a, an ongoing conversation. Planning was about the commander and staff doing the planning to meet that vision for where they wanted to go. And execution was all of them, was all of them together. And that's it, very simple. A little bit different to the first one. Thanks, mate. And then every single thing in there is really hard to do. Thanks, mate. Uh, so we're just moving to the questions now. So the first one is uh, from Captain Michael Anderson of 8-9 uh, RER, joining us uh, remotely. Uh, noting your comments about design, development and execution, do you feel CTC is still best situated to, to uh, deliver training for units and formations? Or could the resources and funding be better spent at the unit level to achieve the same end state while gaining increased experience and exposure in designing training? Well, you need a bit of both, right? I mean, within a unit, you need to be doing some of this stuff, whether it's your PME, uh, whether it's your field exercises, particularly the planning and execution. I mean, that's why we train. But CTC should be there to provide more challenging scenarios and a level of mentoring that you won't find, say, in a brigade or a, or a unit environment. So you need a bit of both, um, but you shouldn't just be outsourcing all your training and this stuff to CTC, in my view. I mean, CTC should be validating what you are doing within a unit or formation. So the second question comes from uh, remote as well, from uh, 2HB, uh, Captain uh, Julie uh, Vidler. Uh, you mentioned we should be uh, training to win. Uh, a lot of our exercises see the plan go ahead without any critical friction, i.e. the plan um, not going the way we envisaged. Um, do you see uh, more benefit of a serialised uh, minor losses within exercises uh, to test and uh, ensure our processes are robust, uh, particularly logistics and health? Yeah, I mean, there's always a tension. Like in every big exercise, you know, there's the manoeuvres who just want to do the manoeuvre stuff. Um, there's the logistics who want to stop the whole exercise to simulate, you know, a supply point being taken out or a mass casualty event. Um, and there's always a tension because, I mean, you've got a whole lot of diggers who are going to be sitting around in those circumstances just to rehearse a few staff officers. Um, this is where the role of virtual and constructive simulation can come in. I mean, you don't have to do everything live. And if you can do simulations and virtual and constructive environments to complement the live stuff, that's, that's where some of this, this stuff can come in. I mean... Um, Hamill 16, when we ran that, we had a live division headquarters, a live brigade in the box, and two virtual ones beside it. And then we had a, a virtual enemy division and a live enemy brigade and a virtual enemy brigade. And it was kind of swivel chair, but we found that you could have live and virtual side by side. And I think sometimes some of the logistics or some of the manoeuvre problems are best done virtually rather than live. And the art is really designing an activity that has both of them and you get learning out of both the live and the virtual side. So don't ever forget the virtual and the constructive environments when you're doing training. It, 
you need to be able to be clever in the design and execution of all three and then learn your lessons from it. And sometimes that's how you get scale. You get scale from the virtual rather than the live. So the next question is from uh, one of us class one, James Cottle uh, from Headquarters 7 Brigade here in the room somewhere. Hello, mate. Right there. Uh, with so much emphasis on combined and integrated operations, uh, when are the other services going to be trained in a commensurate level of planning? Uh, this was evident last year with the Afghanistan NEO, where it's apparent the military appreciation process that Army gains exposure to as early as the subject one for corporal is neither replicated or aligned across the other mm. services in the ADF. Yeah. No, I, I hear you, mate. Um, our, our, um, our process is exactly the same as a joint planning process, right? Um, so I'll tell you the attitude of some in the other services when it comes to this stuff. When I did my first joint planning course as a captain 20, well, it was a while ago, um, I remember we got a back brief and there were two Navy officers briefing their plan. And I put up my hand and said, uh, what's the mission? They lost it. They said, you don't need a mission, it's fucking army shit. I mean, sorry, that's the exact quote, sorry. I didn't mean to drop an F-bomb, I'd got through the whole day without doing it. But that, that, was, that was the exact quote. Um, the other two services look at how we do things, kind of shake their heads. I saw it all the time in the joint operations phase with the staff college. But once they get it, they kind of go, oh, now we get it. Like, this isn't like a fighter squadron. I said, no, it's really not. You're dealing with 12 planes. A platoon commander has more than that. He's got 30 or 40 people that he's, you know, all individuals and all have their own ideas as much as we think we're commanding them. I said, you magnify that in a joint task force with 10,000 people, you have to have a formal planning process. So in the other two services, they don't get exposed to it until they're majors, equivalent. They get it then, but boy, until then it's hard work. It really is. And if you've ever done a float on an LHD, um, you know, the Navy people, they just want to run the ship. And all that army stuff, it's just like yours. Like, but how do we integrate our operations? There needs to be a common language. There is one. It's just they're not taught it till later in their careers than we are. Um, one of the things that Steve, one officer Steve Dutulio, Wonka Academy, some of you probably know him, one of the things he worked on for me a couple of years ago was a joint continuum for NCOs that started at sergeant rather than, because it's kind of way one starts at the moment, to try and get a little bit of familiarisation on those joint planning processes a little bit earlier in the other services for like WO2s and sergeants equivalent. Um, we'll see how we go. I know there's a desire to do that, but once again, time. You know, it's not like people are looking for more opportunities to spend time away from their family on more training courses at the moment. So the next question is 8-9-RAR, uh, Major Slansky here in the room. Uh, in 2016, your review identified that doctrine had a long way to improve. Mm. Uh, the US released the revised uh, FM3 operations in uh, 2017, which highlights a cultural shift from coin to large-scale combat operations. Mm. Yet when we look at the Australian doctrine, uh, 303 formation tactics still remains in an interim state after seven years and we possess no doctrine which prepares our officers to conduct divisional level operations. Furthermore, the brigade SOPs are over 800 pages. What will it take to simplify our doctrine so Come it is on, relevant? Come on, 800 pages? What's going on? <laughs> so it's relevant and contemporary. Yeah. No, I mean, formation tactics, I know we redid that. We did all the, 
the top series when I was TRADOC. Um, but you're right, the Americans have redone a lot of their, they've really focused on that side of things in the last four to five years. Uh, Millie in particular really kicked them along and said, like, I need the doctrinal underpinnings to make this shift from a coin army to a back to high-end warfighting army. And you can't do that without the doctrine right, because what do training institutions use? The currently endorsed doctrine. And that's how you force change at the training institutions from when they come in the door all the way through to their generals course. So they put a lot of effort into their doctrine. Uh, we, I mean, we put effort into it. Uh, the thing we don't put effort into is making people use it. <laughs> like we have some pretty good doctrine that just never gets used. Um, I've become a big believer in doctrine over the years, um, mainly because it is the distilled wisdom of our predecessors. Uh, and if we're smart enough to use it in a way that it's a foundation for our operations, but not a strict template, it can be a very, very powerful thing in an operational army, not just in a training institution, but in an organisation like this. Um, but you know, some of the doctrinal processes we have what I saw were just insane. So we cut some of them away, but we don't always see follow through when we revise these processes to shorten the development process. We were doing something like, we had 350 doctrinal publications in the Australian Army when I did my review. Like, 350? That's just crazy. So a lot of them weren't actually doctrine, they were technical manuals and stuff like this. And then I was like, what's the important stuff? How often do you have to revise it? who's using it, things like that. But uh, doctrine's always emotional. <laughs> um, but it doesn't hurt to look at other people's doctrine and then just steal it. If it's good, maybe we just take it and use it. Oh, in Brigade SOPs, well, you know, I, I talk to the commander, I can't help you with that. But, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not memorising 800. How many books is that in? Is that like three or four? Okay, right, okay, cool, great. Good luck with that. Yep. So the next question comes from uh, Lieutenant Scanlon from 89RER, he's remote. Um, do you see value in force on force, you know, like blank non-lethal training uh, ammunition with unscripted outcomes to test commanders and allow organic friction to decision making? Or is there greater benefit in scripted outcomes that reinforce specific learning outcomes? Mm. Um, I, my experience designing Hamels was uh, you designed interaction for, for people to interact, but the outcome was based on what happened on the ground with umpires and stuff. So you weren't scripting an outcome, but you were scripting a series of interactions that would test um, competencies that you wanted people to learn, you know, test the advance at battle group level or brigade level, test the ability to integrate fires into the advance or, or a withdrawal activity. But if you're doing an attack, like I remember 7 Brigade did an attack in 2015, like the brigade culminated in the break-in. Like it didn't break in, it got broke. Because 3 RER had constructed this defensive uh, scheme that just like broke two infantry battalions. Um, and we kind of sat back and went, hmm, didn't see that coming. So the script was brigade attack on this objective, but 3RR did not follow the script. And they had to, we reset the exercise just to, so I say, listen, 3RR, can you kind of let them break in this time? Just a little bit of exploitation would be good. Um, 
so not everything is, is scripted, uh, but sometimes you do have to script stuff just to get through the amount of serials in a major activity, because once again, you've only got so much time that you can spend away, you know, there's only so much time you can do stuff before vehicles and aircraft go into their maintenance periods, that kind of stuff. Thanks, sir. Uh, thanks, ladies and gentlemen. That concludes the, uh, the question session.